Welcome to the AJP Heart and Cirque Podcast. I'm Kara Hansel-Kehan. Today we'll discuss a new study by Hafner at all titled, Calcium Handling Dysfunction and Cardiac Damage Following Acute Ventricular Preload Challenge in the Dystrophin Deficient Mouse Heart. This article was published October 18, 2023 in the AJP Heart and Circ Call for Papers on Excitation Contraction Coupling, Electrophysiology, and Arrhythmias. Joining us today are Associate Editor Dr. Crystal Ripplinger, author Dr. Tim Domeyer, and expert Dr. Dwayne Townsend. Let's get started. Crystal? Thanks, Kara, and thanks to Tim and Dwayne for joining us today. Today, we're going to be discussing cardiac calcium mishandling and damage in the setting of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or also known as DMD, and specifically using a genetic mouse model of DMD crossed with a mouse that expresses a genetically encoded calcium indicator. Tim and his colleagues investigated changes in intracellular calcium handling in response to increased preload. So Tim, can you briefly explain your approach and some of the major findings of this study? Thanks, Crystal. Sure. Our goal was to use this mouse model to examine the effects of a left ventricular preload challenge on calcium homeostasis in the left ventricle. We cannulated the aorta to do this, uh, and then we also cannulated the left atrium of the hearts so we could control preload pressure. And we monitored left ventricular pressure and cardiac ECGs. After the preload challenge, we monitored lactate dehydrogenase release as an index of cardiac damage, and then quickly moved the preparation to an adjacent confocal microscopy room so we could image the cardiomyocyte calcium handling. In the study, there were some experimental results that we anticipated based on the literature, which included that following the preload challenge, hearts of the DMD mice released significantly more lactate dehydrogenase than hearts of the normal mice. This indicated cardiac damage. We also observed populations of cardiomyocytes with dysfunctional calcium homeostasis, including calcium waves and overall generalized calcium overload. So these findings are consistent with the calcium overload hypothesis of disease in muscular dystrophy. Furthermore, the data are also indicative that the dystrophic heart is inherently susceptible to preload-induced ventricular arrhythmias as we saw significant bouts of uh, premature ventricular contractions, as well as uh, salvos of premature ventricular contractions. Now, there were some unexpected findings as well. And the major unexpected finding was that after the sustained preload challenge, many of the cells didn't appear to have any G-camp fluorescence. In control experiments, the G-camp signal appeared uniform across the myocardium in both groups, which leads us to believe that the dystrophic myocytes either exhibited a transient loss in membrane integrity, or there was cell death and a loss of the myocardium after the challenge. If the latter mechanism is the cause, we may actually be underestimating the extent of calcium overload in the present study. And finally, we find it intriguing that the contractile function of the hearts was not different between the dystrophic hearts and the normal hearts. And most notably, the contractile function was not different between the hearts after the preload challenge. We anticipated that the damage in the calcium handling would lead to a decline in systolic and or diastolic performance. 
And we plan on examining these unusual findings in follow-up studies. Thanks, Tim. As you stated, this study really demonstrates the calcium mishandling and, as you mentioned, this complete loss of calcium or G-camp fluorescence in some areas of the DMD hearts following this acute preload challenge. Duane, can you comment on some of the potential mechanisms that might be underlying these observations induced by the preload challenge? Yeah, sure. Uh, so this is a really cool study. I really like this idea of measuring calcium in vivo inside the beating heart. So I think that's uh, it's really neat. Uh, so the big question is, what is in these empty spaces, right? Is you know, they used all these myocytes, they used to be full of fluorescent dye, and now they're empty. Uh, you know, where did that fluorescent dye go? Uh, so some of the question is, did they ever have it, right? So uh, 20% of the myocardium don't express the G-camp in the first place. So maybe there's some differential distribution within the dystrophic heart. It seems a little unlikely because uh, as as Tim shows uh, that there's sort of this uniform expression when before we stretched them. So then it's kind of makes this suggestion, well, maybe there's something about the stretch. Uh, another possibility that we've seen in our work is actually that the dystrophic mice, when at least in our hands, when we give them this tamoxifen, which we use to turn on the G-camp, you can read the paper. It's kind of a clever trick. Uh, but sometimes it causes disease uh, in the MDX. And so we would get scarring and we would have these areas of just scar tissue uh, on, on our hearts. And we never really looked at just the epicardium. So I don't know really what was happening there. But that's another possibility. Okay, those are kind of the boring, you know, experimental reasons why they might, there might be these holes. So the really cool question is, are we really injuring them? You know, if we, uh, and I don't know, Tim, maybe you can answer this is, did you ever look at the uh, perfuse or the effluent to see, do you get fluorescent dye coming out of the heart? Oh, that's a great question. And I've had that from a few colleagues and it's, it, we, we should have done that. Just put that in a, a spec. We actually did put it up on the confocal and just try to see if we could see a bead of fluorescence. But of course, that's a little bit of a, a foolish task. Yeah. Um, but no, we, we didn't do that experiment. And that we figured we would do a very sensitive experiment with the LDH, which is more of a classic marker. Yeah. But with respect to visual appearance, you can visually see damage occurring in the MDX 4CV hearts during the challenge. Yeah. We didn't mention that in the paper, most notably because then we would sound like a good old-fashioned 1900s-style paper where you talked about going down the hall and, <laughs> and, and looking on the microscope to see the necrotic regions forming. But, um, but you can visually see the damage. And so we decided we'd try to do the more elegant approach with the G-CAMP imaging. But of course, our, our real intent was to look at the calcium, uh, mm -hmm. not to look at the empty spaces, but they just happen to be something that, that pops up as often happens in science. Some of my favorite papers are from the 1800s, <laughs> right? We're here, well, we're here just figuring out, oh, geez, that's how they did it. Like back in the day, you didn't have to pretend you were perfect, right? You, you could were... actually say, oh, well, this mouse, this crazy thing happened, but look what we learned. Absolutely. Okay, anyway, that's so... For the calcium field, that's what our field is based on with Sydney that's... Ringer and the contaminated pipes, right? Exactly. That's my favorite story. I love telling that. 
maybe sometime we'll share it with the rest of the audience. Uh, so really, so we're back at this question, you know, how did we get to this, this injury, right? We stretched these cells. So we know some, in some of our work, we've isolated these cells. Now the problem with isolating cells, especially dystrophic cells is that they die a lot. And so you get, you like kill 90% of your cells and you're like, oh, so now I'm looking at the healthiest 10%. But even in the healthiest 10%, if we grab those cells and we stretch them, magical ways of doing this, right? We can stretch the individual cells. And so if we just stretch them, if you stretch an MDX cell, it, it'll blow up all by itself. So all it takes is a stretch in an isolated cell. And so now to see this in the heart actually happening, right? Where you've got 100% of the cells available. I think that's really cool to be able to demonstrate that. And we'd seen that in some of our other studies where we'd taken these, uh, instead of using like sort of and we still use preload we use the word preload, but we put a balloon inside the ventricle and then we would expand that balloon. Uh, and we'd shown that these MDX hearts, they actually had lower compliance. So they got bigger. And so we're trying to make sense of that. And so it's kind of consistent with this idea that maybe we're killing myocytes and there's the ripping past them. And that's what we were looking at. And so that's uh, really something interesting. Uh, so some of the other possibilities uh that we should probably also think about is because they're dystrophic cells and they're potentially susceptible to injury. You know, the, the, the cells you're looking at are the first maybe four or five layers of cells. Uh, and if these cells, when you're just moving the heart around, squish, 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 you squish them and then they get damaged that way. So it'd be really cool to look deeper into the heart. Do we still see these deficits when we look in the middle, in the middle of the heart is probably harder, but you know, a little bit deeper. Could they be potentially just an artifact of just we're squishing the outside? Part of the problem is, is you see a lot of empty space, right? But you don't see contractile deficits. So then I'm kind of like, mm, how much of the heart are we really jacking up here? And so it can't be that much, right? Because if it was a lot, you they shouldn't contract as well. And you just maybe have way more arrhythmias and stuff like that. Uh, the other possibility is uh, sort of a unique aspect of this preparation, right? So you, we, you take the heart out of the mouse and you're perfusing it with, I think it was like 60 millimeters of mercury uh, pressure to perfuse the tissue to make sure it's just oxygen and is able to eat and all that stuff that heart needs to do. Um, and then when you add the preload, you add 20 millimeters of mercury in the LV, right? So now that really decreases the arterial venous perfusion gradient. And it's possible that the dystrophic heart, which we already know is kind of on edge, just doesn't tolerate that poor perfusion that would be associated with that reduction. In and so I mean, it's clearly something we could look at, but I think it's still a really, a really cool thing. So anyway, that's, that's some of the, some of the, my thinking, at least when I read the paper, I was like, oh, thinking about all of these things. And, uh, you know, mechanistically, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on. It's really great to see some of the stuff we'd seen in isolated cells being recapitulated in the intact organ. That's really interesting commentary, Duane, and I appreciate many of the comments and critiques. Now, one of the major critiques that we have as a lab is that we our microscope is facing the wrong direction. And, and really, from the, uh, the point of view of microscopy, you would want to use an upright microscope for this because then your cannula can be in the right spot, and then you can do this before, during, and after the challenge. And that's really the approach that I think will get to a lot of the critiques that will come out of this that are very valid uh, critiques of the present work, and we can answer a lot of the questions if we just switch to Im imaging modality. Having that cover slip there and having the heart rest against it, uh, you know, in, in the imaging, we can't get our cannula, all of the cannula in there. We can keep the aortic cannula, but, but the preload cannula, we just can't physically do that based on 
the mechanics of the preparation. So uh, I do think that will accelerate a lot of the studies and we're eagerly awaiting more animals in the colony to, to start uh, working on some of these interesting ideas that have come out of the, the critiques from the review team. Yeah, I think one thing, uh, we might take some uh, guidance from some of the optical mapping folks. So these folks, they they just use regular cameras to measure fluorescent signals on the on the epicardium, but they come from the side. And actually, so I have some colleagues who come from all around. And so they like build this three-dimensional map of the art, which is kind of cool, but that's probably not what you need. But really coming at it from the side might be an interesting way to do it. But it would require you to build your own microscope, which might be a challenge. All right. Well, thank you both for a lot of those uh, interesting points of discussion regarding the uh, experimental design of the study. So, Tim, one other thing I noted uh, when I read your study was that the mice that you included were around three to seven months in age. And if I'm not mistaken, that's a little bit younger than a lot of studies that use this DMD mouse model. Can you explain why you chose this age range and why that's important? Absolutely, Crystal, and thanks for the question. We selected this age because we wanted to select an age before the mice had overt left ventricular dysfunction, which typically occurs later in the lifespan uh, in the MDX mouse models. And based on the data that we have from the functional measurements, these hearts did not appear to have any significant abnormalities in contractile function or uh, relaxation rate prior to the challenge, which leads us to believe that there's not a lot of failure of the organ at this point, but we can induce it with the challenge. And uh, to me, I think that's the part that may really help a lot of the translational aspects of this research is to where if you have a mouse model that doesn't naturally develop it, uh, any type of disease in vivo until later in the lifespan, you don't have to wait that long anymore. You can study the organ outside of the the animal at an earlier age and be able to test therapies uh, to see if you can reduce some of the damage that we saw in the, in the present study. So we've already discussed the study design a little bit and the role of this increased preload challenge, which consisted of uh, 20 millimeters of mercury for 30 minutes. Uh, Dwayne, do you have any thoughts on the physiological relevance of this preload challenge in DMD? and whether we might expect to see similar results with different sort of uh, mechanical stress in the DMD hearts? Yeah, so this is, a, this is a great question. Of course, this is what it's all about, right? Is how do we understand this disease better from this study, right? And so this idea of how mechanical stretch and stress on these myocytes, how does that play a role? And I think it's important to kind of think about how does this disease sort of manifest itself, right? And so what do we see clinically? So clinically, the hearts actually don't really play that much of a role when we think about it. So these kids, Duchenne uh, is a genetic disease. It affects primarily children. So they're diagnosed when they're three, four years of age or something around that age. Uh, most of them are in a wheelchair by the time they're 12 years of age. Uh, but importantly, by the time they're 18, 90% of them will have cardiomyopathy. And you see this evidence of cardiac dysfunction as early as 10. Really young kids will have it, but they don't have any, you look at their hearts, they look okay. Uh, and so that's always been, it's been a problem historically. It's that we don't recognize, we hadn't recognized heart failure as a problem in these patients because they're in wheelchairs and you just don't recognize that they, hearts aren't doing their job uh, until it's really too late. And so what we see is at the end of the disease state, 
we see a lot of scarring, a lot of fibrotic replacement of myocytes. Muscle is just gone. So the question is, where does it go? Uh, so we see the same thing in, in the mice, right? And we talked earlier just a moment ago about how as you age these mice, they lose muscle. Uh, and we see this uh, you know, in all kinds of animal models. So in the mice, we see it in the dogs, we see it in the rabbits, we see it in the rats. So it's pretty consistent. Uh, so what's happening? So what it appears to be happening is that the dystrophin, the protein that's missing in Duchenne, seems to play an important role in stabilizing the membrane. Now, you could, the myocyte's an amazing cell, right? Because it takes all of this force and wraps it in a soap bubble and then transmit that force through the soap bubble without popping. And so that's a pretty cool trick. And so dystrophin seems to be really important in that because when you're missing dystrophin, you have those cells popping a lot more. And so we think that that's probably a big part of what's going on here is that the membrane fragility is allowing these cells and these myocytes to lose their membrane integrity. And this is really bad for a cell. And most of those cells will just give up. And then you've got fibroblasts that come in and they're like, you know, trying to bridge the gap because this muscle had a job, right? It was moving blood and you have to keep doing that. And so the scarring that we see is really just the response to dead myocytes. Uh, so that is almost, it's a little too late at that point, but we really need to understand how did we get there? What brought us to this point? Uh, we talked briefly about how, you know, we could take an individual cell and we could stretch it. Uh, one uh, study that is really uh, important uh, in thinking about this is uh, there was a study where they took MDX mice, not quite the same, uh, and they uh, they did a uh, pressure overload where they would tighten down on the aorta. They did this in the abdomen, actually. So they made the abdomen a little bit, uh, the abdominal aorta a little bit uh, smaller. So then the heart had to work extra hard to pump the blood through. And this was really bad for a dystrophic heart. It killed them in days. Like they couldn't even tolerate it. A normal wild type animal, no problem. Their hearts get a little hypertrophied, but you know, honestly, they didn't really care that much. Uh, but with these abdominal aortic constrictions, these MDX mice, they straight up died. And so that really suggested that, geez, there's some kind of mechanical problem here. At least that was the consensus. This being biology, of course, it could be way more complicated and probably is. Uh, but that sort of led us down this, this pathway that this mechanical stretch uh, may be playing a role. Uh, one thing that's a little interesting is that uh, the preload that's offered here is 20 millimeters of mercury, uh, which is not that you know, normal. Normal diastolic pressures are, you know, in the five to 10 range. And so, I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of double the high end, but there's certainly, you know, there are people out there walking around with preloads, you know, in the, of 20 millimeters of mercury uh, and they do okay. Their myocytes don't blow up. But they probably also have dystrophin, so maybe it's not such an issue. Uh, I think that these are happening a lot faster. To get to your your actual question about is the thirty minutes necessary? I think you could probably see this a lot quicker. Um, and I would I would really and I'm glad to hear that Tim has already kind of done these studies. Um, I'm a little sad that he didn't report them, but I think it's really cool to be able to watch this in real time, to be able to stretch these guys. And I appreciate the challenges of working on a small heart. You know, to for the listeners out there who haven't actually seen a mouse heart, it's about the size of an M&M candy, a regular one, not a peanut. Right? And so you're trying to put things into this M&M that is super small. And oh, I forgot to mention, it also beats at like 600 beats a minute. So it's bouncing around. So you've got 
So it's tough. I get it. Right. But it would be so cool to do it on the microscope. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that Tim and his team can figure out a way to do it because it would be fun to watch that happen in real time, to know how quickly that happens. Oh, one thing I wanted to share with you. It's a little, a little secret about, uh, at least that we've seen in our hands, is that uh, there's two ways to measure muscle injury. And so Tim's paper, they looked at lactate dehydrogenase. So lactate dehydrogenase, if if you know lactate dehydrogenase, it's this tetramer. It's this really big, complex of protein. There's another one uh, called creatine kinase. I'm sure Tim knows about this, right? And creatine kinase is used all the time. And we use it actually to diagnose Duchenne because it comes out of muscle everywhere. It also comes out of the heart, which is handy if you have the heart isolated. You can say, I know that creatine kinase came from the heart because that's the only thing around, right? And so you can measure that. And so what we see in our case is that we'll have the hearts on there beating away and they'll be leaking a little bit of creatine kinase. You add the butamine or something, make them heart work hard, then they be a little bit more. But you know what? They didn't leak LDH. And so it was very strange. We just didn't see it until we really just, you could grab them. You could like pinch them. Then you could get them to leak LDH. Or if you just looked into homogenate. So I think that there's sort of this gradient between these two enzymes. And it might be cool to look at that in your studies is to say, what was CK happening? CK is a tiny little enzyme. It's only a one little monomer. It's only, I don't know, at some point I had figured out how, how long it is, but you can look it up, right? It's, you know, it's kind of small. And then you have LDH, which is kind of big. And so then we could actually grade how big are the holes that are forming, which I think would be kind of cool to understand a little bit better about that. Dwayne has already kind of nicely explained to us uh, some of the difficulties in working with isolated mouse hearts, which are akin to a, a little M&M beating at 600 beats per minute. So Tim, I know we've already discussed some of the technical issues that you had to overcome to do this whole heart imaging. Was there anything else that you wanted to to highlight on your approach? Yeah, I'd like to really give some credit to the research team for being able to do the experiments that, uh, that Duane described, because these are tiny hearts. They are beating very fast. Uh, they're amazing little pumps. The amount of fluid that these tiny little M&M-sized hearts can pump, it, it's just phenomenal if you sit there and watch it. And they were able to cannulate all of the right parts of these hearts, put all of these uh, catheters in the right spot, and they were able to stop it from beating so they could image individual myocytes that are, you know, 100 microns long, micrometers. We're talking many of these fit on a period at the end of a sentence. So they're able to be able to prevent this thing from contracting so they can see these individual cells behave. And that makes us excited to do a lot of the studies that Duane talked about, because if you think about that one cell that pops in the myocardium to begin with, when that cell pops, it starts overloading and contracting and it starts pulling on its neighbors. And then those cells pop and they probably start pulling on their neighbors. And so we really do want to watch this in real time to see exactly how we start having these cellular calcium overload events contributing to the, the contractile dysfunction, or at least the calcium handling dysfunction that we've seen. Because we, we see sheets of cells that appear to be gone. And it makes sense if one of them started it and then it just killed off all of its neighbors that it was connected to. But these are just the, the wild ideas in our head right now with the GCAM parts that we, we really want to test with more experiments. And, and having some of this discussion is really helpful to get all these ideas out there. Thanks, Tim. And so as you've highlighted, now you have these triple transgenic DMD mice that also express the G-Camp calcium reporter. You've established these uh, technically challenging whole heart 
calcium imaging approaches. Uh, and so we've already talked about, you know, some of the things that you might want to do. Uh, Dwayne, do you have other thoughts on some of the most important unanswered questions in the field that might now be addressed with these new tools? Yeah. Did I mention how cool this tool is? I mean, it's so neat, right? To be able to measure calcium in a beating heart. Holy buckets, right? So, all right. So given the importance of mechanical force, right? I would really like to see it without blevastatin. I know some of the uh, optical mappers out there are shuddering at the thought uh, but if you could figure out a way, right, to follow them, maybe step back a little bit. Maybe you don't need like myocyte level resolution, you know, step back to a you know, 4X or maybe even just a 1X. Uh, 1X may be small, but, you know, get, step back right? so you can see it and then let it move around and then try to figure out how to track it somehow. I think that there would be a really cool way. The reason it's important, right, is because we need to see that force. That force is so important for understanding this disease. We know that force is really important. And if we get rid of the force, did we ever describe what blevastatin does, right? So blevastatin, for the uninitiated, uh, stops sarcomeres from contracting, right? So they won't create force anymore. They still cycle calcium, which is still cool. Don't get me wrong, optimal people, it's still a neat thing. Uh, but when you're trying to understand the effects of force, we need myosin to be doing its job. And so that would be really cool. I'd really like to see that. Some of the things we kind of already talked about, about sort of stepping back, uh, looking at different things, uh, sparks. Do you think you could see sparks? Oh, that would be so cool, right? To be able to, we demonstrated on isolated cells that you could stretch them and they start making sparks and it's really neat. And you can actually stop those sparks with antioxidants. It's, it's crazy. Does that happen in vivo? Nobody knows. You could figure that out. That would be so cool. Uh, the other thing is looking at uh, the passive calcium. So if you increase calcium, say in the extracellular space, do you get more calcium inside? Do you see more death? Is that something that affects things? Uh, looking at making these hearts work harder, right? Pushing them, you described earlier, right? These these hearts, well, they, they get this reputation as sort of holding on and not having a really bad disease, but they are so on the edge. You push them a little bit and they start dying. You know, myocytes die everywhere. We give these guys isoproterenol, which makes their heart beat hard and fast for just a couple hours and they're blowing up like 20% of their cells. So they have a lot of injury happening. And these are mice that are supposedly don't have cardiac injury, right? But they're very much on the edge. So it'd be very cool in your study to be able to, in your model, to be able to look at what is the response to beta adrenergic stimulation. So that would be really cool. And then the other thing is we speak as if we have money coming out of our ears, right? But to do a fo two photon or a light sheet to get into the depths of the myocytes, to be able to see where the, that's where the work is happening, right? In the, in the core of the ventricle and to be able to look inside there, whew, that would be great. That would be super exciting. Those are the things I'm looking for. We'll see if it happens, but they would really help us understand this disease state and understand how you go from a heart that is doing okay to a heart that's not doing okay. And then with that, we could then try to figure out how can we slow that down? How can we stop that process and keep those hearts doing okay? Uh, well, thank you both so much for this really fascinating uh, discussion. Do either of you have anything else to add? I would like to thank the peer reviewers on the manuscript for the insightful comments and suggestions. And in addition to improving the work, the reviews also provided several interesting directions to pursue in future investigations. And we're certainly excited to start many of these studies. And thanks to Duane for all the 
ideas and passion for the, the research projects that uh, we would like to pursue in the future. Well, I would like to thank Tim and Duane for joining us today and sharing their thoughts on this exciting work. And I'll send it back to you, Kara. Thanks for listening to this episode of the AJP Heart and Cirque podcast. Our theme music was written and performed by Ray Mitchell. Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org slash journal slash AJP Heart.